0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and you are listening to our uh, (laughs) weekend-ish science show. And so tonight, um, we are going to talk about something that's been in the news again for yet another week, and then after that, we will talk about... Several different things. Um, but first, I want to remind you that you can always find me throughout the week at Evidence Based Radio, um, the Facebook page, Evidence Based Radio. You can also email questions or topic requests to Radio at com, And you can now find uh, previous shows, and this one will also go up as well, on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, even Google Play. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so you can find this show as a podcast after it has aired on Friday nights. It usually um, should go up on Saturday, hopefully. And so yeah, if you're interested in hearing more of me or older me, (laughs) you can do that. Okay. So um, happy Friday the 13th. Uh, I hope that you have all had a superstition-free day the way that I have. Um, There is absolutely no reason to be worried about Friday the 13th. It is just a regular old day and nothing uh, will change that just based on the arbitrary uh, denomination that we give the day. Okay. So again, uh, this week we have another uh, fairly awful situation in the news, which is of course this time in Northern California with the several wildfires that are happening out there. Now, I don't have much to say on the science of that that is particularly insightful. Uh, Global warming, recent rain that actually increased the amount of brush available, which is then available for burning, um, especially high winds, and of course, careless humans are a potent combination when it comes to wildfires. Um, And so since I don't have anything specifically uh, insightful about that, what I did want to talk about is... Uh, something that's slightly off topic for the show, but I think is important to bring up Um And that is something that's been on my mind lately and has something to do directly with this, which is the use of incarcerated men and women um, in prison jobs. And so, for instance, these are actually, um, there's actually uh, many people right now in California who are inmates who are being used as firefighters. And um, that is just sort of the tip of the iceberg of the. Basically, slave labor um, that is available to our uh, states and to private corporations via the fact that uh, incarcerated people are allowed to basically be exploited as slave labor. And of course, the really terrible part about all of this is that it's completely legal. Uh, the constitution specifically carves out an exception to the abolition of slavery for those who have been convicted of crimes. And so basically you can still treat prisoners basically as indentured servants or, uh, slaves and, uh, So that is really terrible, and we should definitely fix that. Uh, I think it's high time we thought about ending this ridiculous practice, Uh, not only because all people should be paid a decent wage for their labor, but also because it can have the effect of motivating politicians and for-profit prisons to push for larger incarceration rates. It's also a hindrance to moving the country away from being a police state and towards a nation that values all people, including those that have committed crimes. Now, this isn't to say that these programs should be ended. Some of them very much give an inmate a leg up on getting a job once they are freed from jail, which is an extremely important part of reducing recidivism. Mm. But they should be paid a fair wage so that they also leave prison or jail with a good financial footing. And we should take a moment to think about the 3,800 inmates, including 200 women who are out in California right now on the front lines of these wildfires. They actually get to live in conservation camps, which is kind of the selling point for most of these programs, is that they're not actually in a jail. They get to be out in the wild um, in the forest and they're paid $2 a day with an extra dollar to $2 depending uh, per hour spent on the fire line. So honestly, they're making big money comparatively. Um, And, you know, many of them are very much appropriately proud of what they do, but they are risking their lives for pennies a day because they've created They have done some sort of crime. And so the thing, though, is that all of these people have to be low-risk criminals. And so they haven't done anything that is considered high-risk, that's considered particularly heinous, and yet they're putting their lives on the line. Um, For instance, Sandra Welch, an inmate who works in the Malibu camp, which has fought 177 fires this year. She told NBC, we are the ones that do the line. We are the ones that carry the hoses out. We're the line of defense. And in fact, they are out there with 25-pound backpacks, hiking into the most remote areas where they can't get the bulldozers and the planes and other things in. And so they really are holding the lines in the most dangerous of places. And in fact, three inmates have been killed in recent years. One was struck by a boulder, one by a tree, and another died as the result of an accident with a chainsaw. And again, remember, these are low-level offenders who the state feel can be trusted outside of the actual prison system. And again, these are some of the more lucky inmates when it comes to earning income while in prison. Others with less dangerous jobs are paid just 8 to $0.37 per hour. And of course, it's not just a problem in prisons. You may have also heard recently about the Christian So-Called Rehab Center, which was actually running a slave labor camp for Simmons Food and other uh, chicken producers. And so this was out in Oklahoma. It was a program called, hilariously, CARE, uh, C-A-A-I-R, Christian Alcoholics and Addicts in Recovery. And it was supposed to be a job training program that would also serve as a rehab However, according to former inmates, there was little in the way of actual programming. Instead, it was grueling work seven days a week for free in service of a huge corporation that supplies chicken to the likes of Walmart, KFC, Popeyes, and various food vendors. Um, And so the program was exposed by the Center for Investigative Reporting. And so they interviewed former inmates, including one um, Brad McGahee who is a 23-year-old man who was sent to care after a parole violation for buying a stolen horse trailer. And he wasn't even addicted to any sort of drugs or alcohol. He was just sent to this place because there is a sort of pipeline. And so the group reported on the perils of the job, which could include hand injuries from hanging chickens, acid burns, serious bacterial infections, and body parts maimed by machinery. And in fact, McGahee went back to prison after he received a quote unquote severe crush injury to his hand. Um, And in fact, his hand was nearly severed by a conveyor belt. And so when that happened, he was actually accused of having done that himself in order to get out of work and was told that he would not get Uh, time served for those days that he was unable to work because of his injury. And so basically, he said, this is ridiculous, send me to prison. And of course, rather unsurprisingly, at least to me, as someone who's fairly uh, jaded about these things, it turns out that care was started not by any kind of concerned Christian group, Uh, looking to help inmates with substance abuse problems that just went awry, but rather by Janet Wilkerson, an executive who was once the vice president of HR at Peterson Farms and a spokeswoman for Simmons Food in her spare time. And so, struggling to get legitimate workers to fill the plant's grueling overnight shifts, she created CARE to create a virtually free labor pool, Uh, especially free from all those pesky things like uh, benefits such as medical care, workers' comp, payroll taxes, and the like. And of course, big chicken suppliers, including Simmons and Tyson, were immediately interested in this fabulous-to-them opportunity. And in fact, Simmons is actually building a new plant in Arkansas, despite the fact that it is actually laying off Paid workers. Now, of course, the other major player in these sorts of factories has traditionally been illegal aliens. Um, And there have been several exposes over the years about illegal aliens having been caught up in these really terrible working conditions, especially in chicken plants and other meatpacking plants. And so, of course, as the current administration uh, cracks down on illegal aliens, the the use of inmate slave labor will potentially become even more entrenched, rather than less. And so, this is a really huge uh, societal problem that we have. Um, these people should not be being used in this way. Uh, there are also other sort of labor issues wherein if you have basically people doing slave labor because they're inmates, that reduces the amount of jobs available to people who are out in the regular world. Um, That's personally not my most compelling argument because I think that, um, you know, I would focus more on the idea that these are human beings who deserve to um, have access to the same kinds of rights and responsibilities as everyone else does. And obviously there's a whole uh, argument there about uh, your philosophy on uh, prison or um, reformation or forgiveness of uh, transgressions, things like that. Um, And there is certainly arguments to be made about that. But the fact is, is that most of these people will end up back in communities and it, it is to me a much better idea to put them back into a community with skills they can use with a small amount of money that will help them get on their feet more than the, you know, 50 or $60 they may earn in a year uh, working for 37 cents an hour. Um, And I think that that's a much better idea for everyone. Um, And I don't understand how people who are very law and order oriented don't really see the importance of that. Um I think that in this country we have a real problem with um the idea of vengeance and retribution and not really knowing how to deal with uh moving on from those feelings and uh you know I certainly have had some of that in my own personal life so I am not immune. Um but I think that we really need to focus on healing from that sort of idea that prison is a punishment and you are not to be treated as a human being while you're in a prison because it's just, it's not a good idea for anyone. Uh, Not for the prisoners and not for the community that has to take them back after they have come out of prison. So yeah, Um, (laughs) now that I have done this huge aside uh, about uh, prison reform in this country, which has clearly nothing to do really with uh, what we usually talk about here tonight, let us move on to that sort of stuff. Um, Sorry, it's been in my mind lately. And, you know, I have this soapbox, so I thought I'd use it for a second. Okay. Um, Let us definitely move on to science stories now. And so first, let's talk about the lesser-known psychological effect called the nocebo effect. And so this is actually the mirror image of the placebo effect, wherein a patient can actually have an increased negative association with the drug based on perceived effects of that drug. And so, of course, in the placebo effect, you take something that's basically a sugar pill, and because someone told you it was a pill that had something in it, you feel better. Whereas this is if somebody gives you a pill... And they've said, you know, this has something in it, and um, especially if they then say it could have these side effects, you're more likely to feel those side effects. And so in this case, the researchers compared two versions of a cream for eczema. And so one set of participants was given both a control cream and a cream that was packaged to look like an expensive name brand product while the other set of people were given the control cream, along with a cream that was packaged to look more like a generic. Now, in reality, all of the creams were inert without any kind of active ingredients. And so they told the participants that a possible side effect of the cream was increased pain sensitivity or hyperalgesia. And so what the researchers found, um, and these are researchers from the University Medical Center in Hamburg-Eppendorf, and they showed that the cream with the more expensive packaging caused a greater amount of nocebo effect in the participants and so they note that they had done a previous study actually where they kind of field tested the boxes and so they had already done a previous study where they showed that the packaging of the sort of blue box versus the orange box um that people did feel like the packaging in the blue box made it look like it was a Um, more expensive brand and that the orange box looked more like a placebo. So they actually had already run a test to um, find out how people responded to these different packagings. And so once the participants applied the cream, the researchers used a patch on their arm, which heated it to around 115 degrees Fahrenheit, which would cause uh, what they referred to as a medium amount of pain. And so they found that those who had been given cream in a more expensive-looking package reported a 30% higher intensity of pain, suggesting that they were feeling an increase in the perceived side effect of hyperalgesia. And so the researchers suspect that the participants believed that a brand-name cream would have more active ingredients and therefore more side effects. But what is even more interesting is the fact that the researchers were actually able to image the patient's neural activity using an fMRI. Now, this isn't unusual in and of itself. But what is unusual is that they were able to image both the brain and spinal cord using a new method which is able to uh, harness the imagery of the fMRI in a more robust way than was previously possible. And so lead author and graduate student Alexandra Timmerman noted that this was, for her, quote, the most exciting part of the study. (laughs) And so the researchers were able to correlate the stronger nocebo effect of the expensive uh, product with neural interactions in the descending pain system, which includes areas of the prefrontal cortex, brainstem, and spinal cord. For the first time, they were able to correlate Price and nocebo pain with spinal cord modulation, says Luana Kaloka, a professor of pain and anesthesiology at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, who spoke to Chemistry and Engineering News, adding that the spinal cord plays a critical role in pain modulation. The findings suggest that, quote, for the same painful stimulation, we have we can have different signaling at the level of the spinal cord and brain region because of our expectations based on a drug's price. And so that's a huge effect. Um, it's really interesting. And so again, the mechanisms that cause both the placebo and nocebo effect are actually still somewhat mysterious. (laughs) We still don't really know um, why this happens. Um, But we can tell that it is a real effect with a measured change in brain activity. Um, But we do still have a lot to learn about how it affects people's responses to drugs and other medical treatments. And so as we continue to have these really interesting ways to do new experiments where we can put people in an fMRI and see the changes, see that certain people have a greater response than others, um, we can really at least prove that this is happening. And then once we do that, we can hopefully start to work backwards and find out uh, sort of evolutionary or behavioral reasons for why this might be Um, I mean, there's some pretty sort of straightforward guesses that one can have about this, but it's important to do the actual work and find out exactly what's going on. And uh, one has to remember, though, that it is really hard to do these placebo tests. This was actually a really well-designed one um, because obviously if you have someone who has a real condition, you can't give them placebo, (laughs) Um, especially if they have a real Um, you know, potentially life-threatening or uh, debilitating disease, Um, this is definitely one of the easier um, protocols, I think, to justify in order to, um, you know, actually be ethical when treating or when examining um, a placebo or a nocebo effect. Um, So I think it's really interesting that they were able to figure that out, a um, protocol that would be ethical Okay, so let us switch gears now and talk about a favorite critter of mine, which is the mantis shrimp. Now, these amazing crustaceans, which are, of course, not actually shrimp, uh, but look sort of like them, are known for a variety of cool behaviors and adaptations, including the ability of some species to produce cavitation waves, uh, which they use to crack open the shells of mollusks. Um, they also are able to see the polarization of light. They can actually see circular polarization. um, And we're almost certain that they're pretty much the only animal that can do that. Um, They can see a whole range of colors. Uh, They themselves are often very brightly colored and uh, very um, interesting looking. And they also have um, signals that they use with one another, um, ultraviolet, Uh, signaling and things like that so they're just really interesting uh little um and not so little some of them are pretty big uh crustaceans that are really they're just weird but in a wonderful kind of way and now it turns out that they're weird in a new way and so uh the researchers looked at a bunch of different crustaceans and what they found was that the uh mantis shrimp actually have what are called mushroom bodies in their brains. And this is a really weird and interesting thing. Now, of course, this is not to say that there is some sort of fungus growing in their brain, but rather that they have a structure that is found in insects and is referred to by scientists as mushroom bodies due to the unique structure of the area. Now, these were first identified in the mid-19th century in Hymenoptera, And that's the group of insects that includes wasps, bees, ants, and a variety of other insects. And so these bodies actually help insects form and store memories. And the fact that they are absent in crustaceans, uh, which actually have a common ancestor with with insects, has actually been a scientific mystery. And so... um, The crustaceans basically broke off into two lineages where one continued to be crustaceans and the other became insects. And so it's always been weird that crustaceans don't have these mushroom bodies, whereas insects do. And so um, people have sort of wondered what's going on there. Now, crustaceans tend to have a similar structure called hemi-ellipsoid bodies, uh, which do help with sensory integration. And so these have been considered sort of the crustacean equivalent of the mushroom body, and were thought to have evolved convergently, sometime after the split between insects and crustaceans. However, the researchers contend that the mantis shrimp possesses true mushroom bodies that align with the morphological criteria they have compiled of insect mushroom bodies, or MBs for short. Um, And so now this is definitely going to be a debate. Uh, There is definitely a debate as to whether or not this represents a shift in the origin of MBs further back to before the ancestral split, or whether this is a similar example of convergent evolution, wherein two separate lineages develop similar or identical solutions, such as the development of flight in both birds and bats, uh, despite being only fairly distantly related. And so in this case, the authors suggest that because mantis shrimp and their relatives are the only crustaceans which hunt over long distances uh, and have other sort of complex uh um, behavior is that they may, fo- that therefore they might require this sort of advanced memory of, for instance, where food sources may be located. And so it would make sense for them to have a structure closely related to that of an insect's MBs, uh, which performs the function of memory and learning. So it would make sense. Now, the authors of the current study, which is published in eLife Science, uh, suggest that the mushroom bodies actually do represent an ancient morphological trait that has since been lost in most crustaceans and retained only fully by mantis shrimp and partially in related stomatopod species. And so mantis shrimps are actually stomatopods. That's their more um, scientific name. Now, this may not seem terribly interesting or compelling to the average person. Uh, obscure parts of the brain of insects and weird uh, crustaceans may not sound totally and utterly fascinating. Um, but the reason I wanted to talk about it is because it's part of the wonderful and messy world of science that I really like. Um, and so I was actually reading sort of the, um, the if you go to the, and I will actually, um, when I get out of here, I will actually put a link to it because I think it's really interesting to look at. Um, If you actually go to the eLife Science um, page where the paper is, you can see that they've actually left in um, the reviewer notes. And so you can see the really very clearly the kind of back and forth between the reviewers and the researchers doing the uh, original Work and writing the original paper, and how they're going back and forth and talking to one another about, well, you know, I'm looking here and it doesn't necessarily to me say that it's what you say it is. And then for them to come back and say, look, we've done this other thing that shows you more information. And, you know, it just, it's really interesting to sort of look at that and go back and forth. And so that's kind of what a lot of the stories tonight are about this sort of idea of going back and forth and sort of exploring the edges of what we might know. Um, and so science is constantly evolving. And as we look more closely at various aspects of nature, and especially as we develop new tools, such as the advanced fm- fMRI imaging uh, that I talked about a few minutes ago, we find even more and varied questions and possibly a few answers. And so as I'm always trying to note, this is the true strength of science. Even though it may appear that the changing nature of scientific thought should discredit it, only thought that is open to being challenged and revised should truly be trusted. Any supposed facts that refuse to be challenged and don't engage in criticism should be considered suspect at best. Um, And that's really how I feel about it. Um, You know, if you are just going to talk about having something be um, possibly basically sacrosanct where you cannot uh, have any kind of uh, challenge to it, that's a problem. Now, of course, challenges have to be proportional. So, you know, the flat earth theory is not proportional. Um, There is no reason to think that the earth is not a globe. Um, Please, just if there's one thing that you truly believe in this life... (laughs) um, as far as science goes versus, you know, loving your fellow man and, you know, things like that, have faith that the earth really is a globe and it is not, um, or that it is an oblate spheroid to be uh, precise and that it is not flat. Um, and on that note, we should probably take a break, do some PSAs, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about swearing birds. (laughs) So hang on for just a minute.
1: Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs.
0: Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him,
1: his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender
0: based on their clothes, based on their hair, based on their voice, who they hang out with, who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns!
1: Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity.
0: My name is Amanda Messer. I'm 17 years old and I'm a student from Turner's Falls High School. Billboard bodies. Does anybody really look like that? Someone could be flipping through a magazine, looking at that pretty girl or that buffed out guy, then go gag themselves. We need to love our looks for what they are, other than what people say they need to be. People can have beauty no matter what they look like. Beauty only comes from the, from the heart, soul, and mind. Most magazines emphasize the outside, when it's the inside that really matters. And change in society would be most ideal for everyone. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S.
1: I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I'm not time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant.
0: I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids
1: are too old for flu. The media is exaggerating. I can
0: fight it naturally.
1: No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov.
0: A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I'm meeting place at our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council
1: nerd night noho is proud to support valley free radio where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art culture and science you can find us at noho.nerdnight.com
0: Hey, We are back. And as I promised, we are going to talk about swearing birds. <laughs> um, so this is just a quick story. Uh, I thought it was nice to sort of segue uh, to something that is a little less esoteric uh, and just rather kind of funny. Uh, So it turns out that Australia has a bit of a problem with salty-languaged birds. Uh, And so in certain forest regions of Australia, pet birds that have escaped captivity have been teaching wild parrots and cockatoos the language that they picked up whilst among humans. Um, And so as you can expect, not all of it is fit for all ages. Um, and apparently also it becomes jumbled as it gets passed on um, to other parrots. So uh, they said that, you know, you can go out in into the forest and start hearing just random human words coming from up above you. And so according to uh, Jania Sloddick, uh, and reported in Australian Geographic, birds that escape captivity are likely to use the words they've learned as signifiers of their fitness. And so parrots use their ability to mimic song and other sounds as an indicator of their genetic fitness and any advantages that human speech can provide will be exploited by the newly freed birds. It's part of their language, says Sladek. For some species, it's like advertising. I am very fit because I can learn a lot of different birds' calls. And so wild birds soon pick up the words and sounds and actually transmit them then to their offspring. And so there's no reason why if one comes into the flock with words, then another member of the flock wouldn't pick it up as well, Um, Sladek told Australian uh, Geographic. Of course, the most famous example of a mimic is another Australian bird, which is the lyre bird. I'm almost positive I've played a clip before of this extraordinary bird, um, and I won't do it tonight, but I have already scheduled the uh, link to the clip from um, the amazing David Attenborough's Life of Birds. If you haven't seen it, you should watch the entire thing. Um, (laughs) Just trust me, it's amazing. Um, And it's David Attenborough. Who doesn't love David Attenborough? Um, If you don't, you can't be my friend. (laughs) Anyways, um, and so it shows just how amazing. The Liar Bird uh, is. And it's also kind of funny uh, looking as well. So it's just a great, um, this is much lighter than some of uh, the other things that we've been talking about. And I just thought it would be fun to kind of interject with that. but if you ever find yourself in the Australian wilderness and someone starts swearing uh, or yelling, apparently, hello, cocky, um, as in cockatoo, uh, look up. It might just be a feral parrot or cockatoo that wants to show off its impressive vocabulary. <laughs> so, yeah, um, definitely a little bit more fun. Uh now we are going to switch gears um, and head back to America to talk about Yellowstone. Um, and yes, this could technically be considered a dramatic mood shift, but the reason I want to talk about it is because it's actually not. Um, and so the fact that it is a uh, it is a semi dormant. Super volcano. So, yes, it's a super volcano. um, And it is definitely at some point in the future going to erupt and it's going to be a lot of rocks fall, everybody dies. Um, That is a truth. And there's not a whole lot we can do about that. Um, And, you know, there is a large amount of sort of Baseline activity at Yellowstone. That's why you get all these geysers, Old Faithful. That's why you get all of the amazing things that are there. It's because of all of the geothermal energy that's roiling around under the surface. But by all accounts from any credible science scientist, it is not in any danger of exploding at this time. And so there's a new study out that uh, has people worrying uh, that the volcano is basically going to explode at any minute. And so this is put out by Arizona State University. And of course, as with many of these reports, when people read a uh, scientific paper and they sort of either don't understand it or only read what they think, it says rather than what it actually says. Um, This paper says nothing about the idea that it's going to explode at any minute. It says nothing of the sort. And so the report simply states that the magnet chamber below the park can be refilled much faster than previously believed, and so that's a pretty significant finding um they think that it can be refilled on the order of decades rather than centuries, so that's a big difference um but it is not to say that, that it's happening right now or that it's going to happen anytime soon and so basically, what the team did was they analyzed minerals in fossilized ash from the most recent eruption of the caldera and found that it took only two influxes of magma to refill the reservoir. They found that the changes in pressure and temperature required for an eruption built up much more que- quickly than previously hypothesized. It's shocking how little time is required to take a volcano- volcanic system from being quiet and sitting there to the edge of an eruption, study co-author Hannah Shamloo told the New York Times. However, I cannot stress this enough, there is no indication that such refreshing of the magma chamber is currently underway. Yellowstone is one of the most closely monitored volcanoes in the entire world. Michael Poland, the current scientist in charge of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory for the U.S. Geological Survey, notes that there are a variety of sensors and satellites that track the movements of the area for signs of change that might indicate an eruption was imminent we see interesting things all the time but we haven't seen anything that would lead us to believe that the sort of magmatic event described by the researchers is happening said poland via email to national geographic adding that the research overall is somewhat preliminary but quite tantalizing and so Sham Lu and her colleague, Christy Till, presented the findings of their analysis of ash deposits from the Lava Creek Tuft in August at a volcanology meeting in Oregon. And so the ash comes from an explosion of the volcanoes some 630,000 years ago. And so that was one of a few mega eruptions that they um, can positively identify over the past 2 million years. The last eruption of any size was some 70,000 years ago. And so it's definitely not um, something that has happened in recent memory. And sometimes people worry that that means that it's coming up, um, but there's nothing to indicate that. and so some were worried when scientists announced that the magma chamber had bulged up to 10 inches between 2004 and 2011. But the magma that, called that caused that uplift is far too deep in the chamber to pose any immediate worry. Right now, there is no way to predict when the next big eruption will happen. But again, there's no indication that it will be any time soon. Um, and so you do not need to go start getting supplies for the uh, you know inevitable uh, nuclear-esque winter that will happen. It's just you don't need any of that. It should be perfectly fine. And if it does start to happen, we will at least have decades, not centuries, but decades to get ready for it. And again, Probably not going to happen in any of our lifetimes. And in fact, uh, right now, there is uh, the moment the the odds uh, at the moment of an eruption are the same as a catastrophic asteroid collision, which again will happen at some point, but <laughs> and so they are around one in seven hundred and thirty thousand on any given day, according to the USGS. Um, and so definitely not a huge worry. Okay, let us finish up tonight with some more archaeology stories. There have been a lot of archaeology stories uh, lately. Uh, do sound off if you like them, don't like them. Uh, Facebook page, uh, evidence based radio, evidence based radio at gmail.com. I really would love to hear from you. Okay, so this first story is a little bit of. Uh, I tried for several things, but I finally went with Howard Carter meets Alan Turing. Um, And so it has to do with epigraphy, uh, which is one of my favorite things. Uh, It's people who have uh, learned how to decipher ancient texts. And um, there's some really amazing stories about people who are able to um, decipher ancient texts from really nothing. Um, You know, we always think about the Rosetta Stone and uh, hieroglyphics and how that enabled us to be able to um, interpret hieroglyphics. But there have since then been uh, especially pictographic languages that people have deciphered without that kind of Rosetta Stone um, head start. And so it's really amazing. But anyways, If Authentic, this is the story of a uh, 3,200-year-old inscription that has recently been deciphered. And so the limestone frieze was originally some 90 feet long and 14 inches high, and would have been the longest example of Bronze Age hieroglyphic writing. It tells the tale of the development of a powerful kingdom called Myra, which waged a series of military campaigns led by the Prince Muscus of uh, Troy. And so the script in the ancient language Luian is decipherable by only around 20 scholars worldwide. And so one of them, Fred Woodhuizen, is an independent scholar and has teamed up with Eberhard Zanger, a geoarchaeologist and president of the Lewian Studies Foundation, to decipher the text. They will formally present their findings in the December issue of the Journal Proceedings of the Dutch Archaeological and Historical Society. Now, if authentic, and there's always some question in these cases, the inscription, which was copied by the archaeologist Georges Perrault in 1878 in Bey Koy, uh, Turkey, illustrates some of the activities of a branch of what modern day scholars sometimes refer to as the Sea People, as an SEA. And so these were a confederation of peoples who swept into the Middle East and destroyed cities and civilizations, including the Hittites. And so, of course, this would be a very interesting find. However, again, caution is called for because it turns out that the only extant version of the inscription is a copy of a copy of the original copy found in the estate of James Millart. And so he was a famous archaeologist who died back in 2012, and then his son apparently found this and donated it to the um, Luwian Society. And so he was actually famous for several major discoveries, including Ketel Hayuk, which I'm almost certain I'm not Quite pronouncing correctly, uh, which is the ninety five hundred year old city uh, in Turkey, which many believe to be the act- to actually be the oldest in the world. now, some scholars obviously have raised eyebrows about the possibility of a hoax based on the fact that the version deciphered is as mentioned a copy of a copy of a copy. Supposedly, the original inscription was lost when shortly after having been discovered and copied, the stones were broken up and the inscription, uh, the stones with the inscription were broken up and repurposed in the building of a mosque. And so Perrault's copy of the inscription was later discovered by a scholar named Bahadir al Kim, who made a copy which was then copied by Mallart. And so it seems odd that Millard himself did not publish any scholarship on this um, inscription, only mentioning it briefly in a book review back in 1992. But according to Mallart's notes, the reason he never published the inscription was that he had been part of a team whose members all died <laughs> before they were able to complete the decipherment. And so he was the youngest member of the team but he didn't actually speak or be able to, he was not able to read Luian, so he couldn't do it himself. Um, and of course, this fact is actually very important to Zanger and Woodhuizen, um, who note that this being the case, he almost certainly couldn't have been the author of a forgery. And in fact, Luyan was not even deciphered until the 1950s. So if the original document was indeed from the late 19th century, it could not have been forged. And they found no possible motive for Millard to have forged such a document. Um, you know, he wasn't exactly a uh, very modern the way we would consider a modern archaeologist today. Uh, He was a little more Indiana Jonesy than, um, you know, a uh, 21st century archaeologist. He did, uh, you know, let slide the idea of where certain things came from um, back in the day. And, you know, he was not known as the most incredibly upright of people, but there's... Despite that, there's no indication to suggest that he would have come up with such an elaborate hoax. No reason for him to have done that. However, of course, until they are able to find independent corroboration, there will definitely be lingering doubts. But if it turns out to be real, and I mean, it seems pretty ridiculous to have created such a hoax for this um, really obscure thing. Um, So I would be inclined to feel like it's probably real. Um, The inscription states uh, that it was, the inscription was commissioned by Kupanta Kurunta, the great king of Myra, a late Bronze Age state in Western Asia Minor, Uh, Dr. Zanger notes. When Kupanta Kurunta had reinforced his realm just before 1190 BC, he ordered his armies to storm toward the east against the vassal states of the Hittites. After successful conquest on land, the United Forces of Western Asia Minor also formed a fleet and invaded a number of coastal cities in the south and southeast of Asia Minor, as well as in Syria and Palestine. Four great princes commanded the naval forces, among them Muscus from the Throde, uh, which is the region of ancient Troy. And so the Luwians from Western Asia Minor advanced all the way to the borders of Egypt and even built a fortress at Ashkelon, in southern Palestine. Now, according to the inscription, the Luwians from Western Asia Minor contributed decisively to the so-called Sea People's invasions, and thus to the end of the Bronze Age in the Eastern Mediterranean. And like I said, this is a bit of a Victorian mystery story, uh, which may or may not bear out to be true. Um, But if it is true, it gives us really interesting insight into an otherwise- fairly mysterious people. Okay, let us wrap up tonight talking about Vikings. (laughs) So you may have heard about this, um, but it's fairly new. Uh, So some ancient burial clothes that were thought to bear a simple Viking pattern have been reexamined to reveal that what had thought to be just a simple geometric pattern is actually geometric Kufic script, which spells out the word Ali and Allah, woven in silver thread onto the silk garments. Now, this is the first time an artifact bearing the name Ali has been found in Scandinavia. And it turns out that it wasn't actually all that uncommon when they fu- when found finally realized and looked for it. The discovery was made when a group of researchers tried to recreate the patterns on burial garments in storage for a then-upcoming and now-on-display, if you want to go to Sweden, uh, Viking Couture exhibit, Um, I wish I could, um, at Enköping Museum in Sweden. And so what they found was that out of 100 garments surveyed, at least 10 items contained the script. The garments come from the 9th and 10th century, um, and they come from boot graves around Gamla Uppsala, as well as chamber graves from Viking era sites such as Burka in Swedish Malardalen. This is a very important discovery because it tells us we can't view this historical period as typical Nordic, typically Nordic. Annika Larson, a textile archaeologist at Uppsala University, told The Local. It shows us that the Vikings were in close contact with other cultures, including with the Islamic world. Now, the connection to the Islamic world has actually been solidified in recent years with several other findings, including a hoard of Viking Age Arab coins discovered in 20, 2008 and a ring found in 2015 with the inscription To Allah, found in a 9th century woman's grave in Birka, Sweden. Larson notes that she initially couldn't understand the design, but then remembered that she had seen something similar in Moorish textiles from Spain. Further analysis of the materials, weaving techniques, and design suggests that the garments originated in Central Asia or Persia. The name Ali was it was easy to decipher, but the Allah was written in a mirror script, most likely a copying error, according to Amir de Martino of the Islamic College in London, who spoke to the BBC on the subject. Larson suggests that the names placed together on these garments suggest that they were more than simple trade goods. Presumably, Viking Age burial customs were influenced by Islam and the idea of an internal life in paradise after death, she said in a statement. Grave goods such as beautiful clothing, finely sewn in exotic fabrics, hardly reflect the deceased's everyday life, just as little as the formal attire of our era reflects our own daily lives. The rich material of grave goods should rather be seen as tangible expressions of underlying values." However, Hilary Davidson, a dress and textile historian at the University of Sydney, who is currently researching the transmission of Islamic and Byzantine textiles in medieval Christian churches, is not so sure. The quality of Islamic silk textiles was such that they were highly coveted and used in Christian churches across Europe and for vestments. They were valued for their quality and beautiful beauty, not their religious context, which in any case became divorced through trading patterns. These silks were traded across Europe for centuries, and it is possible that the Norse Kufic patterns are imitating the pattern of Islamic textiles without knowing what the meaning is. They might be trade goods applied to Viking clothing as examples of high status, high quality silk, and metal textiles. And so having made this discovery, um, researchers can now sort of look into this further to see um, if they can find a more definitive answer to whether or not these were just grave, um, that these were just status symbol um, items, or if they were actually integrating some of these cultural ideas into their own cultural. Um, And so they'll be able to go back and look at other Viking artifacts to see if other examples of Kufic script are found. Regardless, though, um, it again sort of points to the fact that even if this doesn't necessarily represent true cultural exchange um, and is mostly just the exchange of goods, it once again shows how the Vikings were a sophisticated trading culture, um, much different from the sort of idea of just Viking barbarians, uh, raiding coasts and, uh, raping and pillaging, that that is not, um, all that the Vikings were. I mean, they did some of that. You can't deny that, but they were a much more, um, rich and sophisticated people than just that. Okay. That is us for tonight. Um, Please do stay tuned um, for civil politics. They have a special guest tonight. Um, The chief of police of Northampton will be joining them to uh, discuss current events in the city, including the uh, surveillance camera uh, proposal. So definitely stay tuned for that. And I will be back next week. Good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information episodes from our archives, and other projects, please visit www.planetside.pro.
1: And thank you for listening.